So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, January the 5th, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 239. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm really glad that you're here, wherever here is for you. Happy New Year and all that good stuff. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down at the video description below, and you'll see all the topics listed in order. It's not a very long list today, but it's important stuff, I think, for you to know. What's going on outside? Snowy weather. We've got uh, several inches of snow already on the ground and the threat for more. So there you go. Winter has finally arrived and I don't have to worry about my beehives warming up and flying out at a time of year when they really shouldn't be other than those valuable cleansing flights. So if you want to know how to submit your own question for consideration, please go to the way to be dot org and there's a page there click on it it's called the way to be also and there's a form that you fill out and uh what else can we talk about windy rainy slant snowy and i think everything's okay the opening sequences include some thermals because it's a great way to go outside and find out where that cluster is located to see if you need to feed your bees i thought i had a mouse that was chewing up through the bottom board of one of my hives but it wasn't I even went out there with my endoscope just to see. Maybe you've got a question that you'd like to talk to somebody about right now. So if you Google the Way to Be Fellowship on Facebook, you can find the group. And there's always someone to talk to there 24-7, seven days a week. And uh, it's a good group of people, all levels, no question too basic, no topic too sophisticated. Friendly beekeepers from everywhere. This is also a podcast for those of you here that are traveling, so you can hit Google and do a search, The Way to Be Podcast, and then it'll show up, hopefully, for one of the podcast systems that you use, iHeartRadio, Apple, and Podbean, which is where it originates. So let's jump right into it and get going. First one comes from Kelly. Kelly submitted this a couple of times because she wanted to make sure that I covered it, and I think it's important for those that are getting ready for spring. They're going to be uh, expanding their operations and maybe don't want to use a nuke box specifically, but want to use a 10 frame or an eight frame deep standard nuke, not standard nuke, but standard brood box. And then of course, modify it. So the question is here, it says, I'm curious as to your thoughts about dummy boards specifically. I spent a lot of time this fall dealing with long neglected woodenware chores. In an effort to streamline my inventory, I'm working and wondering what your thoughts are would be to use a 10 frame equipment with addition of dummy boards on the perimeter and using it as if it were a five frame nuke. Do you think that would get the same production and efficiencies, assuming the hive grew appropriately? I would remove the dummy boards over time and keep them in the 10 frame equipment. This is exactly um, what I used to do. I did all 10 frame uh, and eight frame boxes. In fact, when I installed nukes or if I collected a swarm or something like that, I brought them home and put them right into the standard eight or 10 frame. You know why? Because I didn't want to monkey with having to change it out later. So as you know, I use nucleus resource hives now. And so those are there, you know, all year round. It used to be seasonal, but uh, it's true that when you put a swarm or a package or something like that into a full size eight frame or 10 frame deep box, they build up, but they do it slower than they would if you put them in a nucleus hive. 
So before I get into the follower boards or dummy boards or insulated boards or dividers, there are companies already that make hives that have the equipment built into it for you to divide them. And the first one that comes to mind is Apame. Apame has, and I you know, just started using Apame over the past couple of years. So Apame has a nucleus hive, which is a seven frame nuke, and that can seem pretty darn big, right? Uh, and they offer supers that are mediums or deeps, but they come with dividers and it's already built so that when the divider goes in, it splits the hive. And even if you super it, there's a divider for the super that would keep them to say a five frame if you wanted. So if we had a 10 frame box, the way it's set up is so that 10 frame box, you put in a divider and you're supposed to have four frames in on each side. But I found out that the standard wooden Langstroth frames, it'll take five of them. So you can actually have two nukes side by side. And the way their bottom boards are set up, the way their entrances are set up, there's just an example really quick. Uh, they have separate entrances already. So if you had your divider there, there's nothing else to change. You can close one side. These are interesting things like that one has, this side is completely closed now, partially open, and you can reduce them to any size that you want. And I like the fact that they are separated. So the entrances are well away from each other to cut down on drift, but I think there would be a lot of drift. But what we're talking about now would be closing one side off completely and having one side open. So if you close up one side of your eight frame or 10 frame box, here's what I recommend, food for thought. Uh, it's the Eastern side. So I'm making this assumption that your entrance and landing board are facing South, South or South by Southeast. That is the best direction to aim it, in my opinion, okay? So once you've done that, if you're going to reduce the frames, and I think it's a great idea, by the way, yes, use a 10 frame or an eight frame deep box and just put in, they're not, you know, I know that some people call them dumber, dummy boards, but I think the best description would be follower boards because they're designed for you to be able to expand frame by frame. Where do you get them? Well, I looked it up before I even talked about this today. Better Bee carries them, and so does Man Lake. I'm sure you can get them other places. But you'll find them, if you're doing a search there, you'll find them listed as follower boards. And they sell them for medium supers, because some people also use nothing but medium boxes. I personally don't. But for those of you who do, they make follower boards ready to go, and they're inexpensive. They're like $8, $7 and something apiece. The cheapest ones were at Better Bee. And Man Lake looked like theirs were made out of thicker plywood. So there again, I would use those follower boards, but I would also on the side opposite the bees. So you've got a wooden surface there that faces the interior space that's going to be built up because it's even better than a five frame. If you only wanted to start with three frames, you could do it. Follower boards over there and there they are. And the question was, where would I start? How would I position it, right? So that's why I mentioned the direction of my hives is facing south, therefore the eastern side. Because that's the side that gets morning sun, early warmth. And I notice that when the bees are provided with the full space, in other words, a full 10 frames or a full eight frames in a deep box, they most frequently build towards the sunrise side of your hive. So that's the part that I would start them in. And then the follower board I would use to block out the side that goes to the sun setting side, the western side. And then as they start to fill, I would expand it frame by frame until you had seven out of eight or nine out of 10 frames full or in production. And that's when I would then super and I would remove that follower board. 
Now another option that you have, and I've talked about them before, you can use um, a frame feeder, that's what this is, as a follower board, but you're going to have to add something to the bottom because it won't go down as deep as your frames, therefore it would allow your bees would have access. So you might have to wrap it with something. Follower boards are designed to fill the space right down to those rabbit joints so that your bees can't go around the ends and can't go underneath. A frame feeder like this, they could go underneath. This might require some modification, but the reason that I bring these up is if you use them to feed your bees, uh, then it's dual purpose. So it's not just a follower board. It could be a feeder. And you might be asking, Fred, do you use frame feeders? No, I don't. I just uh, think that these are great placeholders for the cages that I use, but it could also be, if you modify it, a follower board. So let's make sure I answered all the questions because once you get in there and does it improve production? Absolutely does. Bees work better in smaller spaces and then they even work better. This is why I mentioned the Apame version. Lyson also makes a nuke and uh, so there are several companies that make nukes, but the question is versatility later. So then what you would do is you can expand up until you've got 10 full frames instead of just, let's say we had a 10 frame deep. But if you put two 10 frame, two deep boxes on and you kept them over to one side, so now we have five over five like a nuke, only it's still in the 10 frame deep boxes, they will build those 10 frames out quicker than if you had the single deep with one through 10 frames horizontally. So that's something to think about because then when that second deep, let's say you don't wanna deal with double deep boxes, right? So that's why we're using a follower board for both of them. And we're gonna keep them together in those top. Now we have 10 frames. So now we remove the top box altogether and put all 10 frames in the single brood box. And then we can go ahead and begin the supering of your hive at full eight or full 10 frame size boxes. What are your thoughts about that? I think it's a good idea. I would do it. And that's where, like I said, I did it in the past, but now I'm using nukes themselves. So there's nothing wrong also, you know, for those of you who don't mind, starting with a nuke. And uh, Apame is set up to do that. They're full 10 frame size. They have dividers ready to go. In fact, I believe it can divide into three. So you can have three colonies in there. I don't know if I would do that personally, but uh, I do like using it to just confine them to five frames till they build out because I did that this past year. And I did it both for the seven frame nuke because that has a divider board in it. And I also did it with the 10 frame standard Langstroth sized Apame hive and both worked equally, but I kept them to one side until they built up. Let's move on to question number two. This comes from Vallis from McDonald PA. I bought the Ultra B protein powder. So that's Ultra B, I think it's Ultra B dry pollen substitute. So it's 10 pounds and I also bought the two pounds of, bought two pounds of pollen and ran it through a flour mill. So ground it all up, but bought pollen, that's interesting. And I mixed both and put it in my feeding station. I put out three pounds the first time and the other nine pounds out two weeks ago. They went through it before New Year's Day. And so I should pause there. One of the reasons that this even came up is because we had these unseasonably warm days. In fact, a whole series of warm days in the state of Pennsylvania, probably other parts of the Northeast as well. And so the bees were out foraging and the risk of course, when they're foraging or looking for resources and 
let me tell you, they weren't passively looking for resources. They were intense and they were checking out every little thing that could be a resource for their colony. And the reason that's a concern is they could rob out a weak colony. So providing a diversion, I think is okay. Um, so I'm going to get to, you know, what may not be happening and what may be happening and what the risks are and what I would do personally, because that's what this really boils down to. So I also put out two, one, I put two to one sugar syrup for them and in uh, a weatherproof pet heater under the tote. I do all this because on warm days, it gives them a purpose instead of just flying around looking for stores to collect. Is that a bad thing for my bees? Okay, so here's this discussion. And you know, you're gonna find out even the highest level scientists are not seeing eye to eye on this practice of fall feeding of proteins. And that's why we have, you know, the distinction of there are winter patties, for example, which don't have any protein in them at all. And the kind of protein that we're talking about is plant protein. And why would the bees need it? It's so that they can start brood, feed brood, and of course, keep the colony going through winter. So you'll see a lot of discussion about this. This is hard for new beekeepers to figure out because you're going to find that people with terrific credentials, great street credibility when it comes to keeping bees will have conflicting opinions about feeding your bees in winter, what to feed, what's okay, and so on. So again, it becomes a regional thing, right? So bees that can get out and get cleansing flights and things like that, there are no problems with providing them with pollen sub and things like that, because that's what Ultra Bee is. It's a tri-pollen substitute. It's supposed to help your bees maintain a protein level that would help them in the absence of real pollen uh, feed brood and keep it going. So the other side of that is he's also added uh, real pollen to it. So purchased real pollen, which I think is interesting. I personally wouldn't buy pollen. You know, this is no slant on whoever's selling it. I'm just saying that um, the reason I'm not that worried about it, and even with the dry pollen sub, if it's just to occupy the bees, give them something to do, that's great. Uh, but the thing is, there's no solid evidence that this will result in a benefit to the colony. And so those that have an argument against using it will base that argument on the fact that bees cannot often get out of the hive to do cleansing flights. And that's why I said that this may be something that is more important if you're farther north. Uh, as we have right now, we've got the cold weather in and bees are not going to be flying. So any solids that they have in their mid gut and in their hind gut. They have to keep on their body, in their body, until they can get out to do a cleansing flights. So one of the reasons that this is an issue is because um, some people will say then only feed sugar syrup, for example, or, and that's, you know, if they could fly again, cause you're putting water or liquid in there, two to one is okay. But again, personally, this time of year, I would not feed liquid because We've gone below freezing at night. However, and that's why I have to add this too, if you're in an area where it is not freezing overnight, where your bees can make cleansing flights at some point of the day, it is not as critical. So, but the point is you might be wasting your money. A lot of people will say, if you live in an area that has absolutely no resources for your bees, pollen substitute, protein patties, protein feeds, and things like that. And there are some very good tested, evaluated, 
pollen patties on the market. Global is one of the top performing ones. So you're talking about global pollen patties and there's a distinction there because when they have the pollen in them, they are intended to boost brood. Who needs to have that done with their bees, right? So that's the other part of it. Who is this for? For the backyard beekeeper, I think it's only a feel good thing. The reason I say that is we are not having to get our bees ready to be shipped out and to some pollen services, right? So pollination services in the state of California is the biggest activity that commercial beekeepers have. They have a very specific regimen that they need to feed their bees because guess what? They're paid based on the grade of the colonies of bees that they send in for pollination. So they need brood early. That's why a lot of those don't come from the Northern United States because they're not brooding up yet. And this is why for the backyard beekeeper, and this is my target group, um, I don't necessarily need to artificially boost the brood. What matters and what is critical to your bees would be the amount of resources that they have in the way of carbohydrates. So the reason for that is I want them to brood up when these resources start to show up in the environment. And you may have looked at my channel and looked at the YouTube and seen that I've tested dry pollen substitutes and I have. Why do I do that if I don't feed it to them? because part of my backyard testing is simply to show what the preferences are by the bees. In other words, what will they use? What will they take back to the hive over another product? So AP23, and then we've got Mega Bee, and then we've got Ultra Bee, Dry Pollen Sub, and there may be some others out there, uh, but the top two performing dry pollen substitutes out there, and when I say top performing, that means tested, evaluated, resulting in brood improvement, and so on, uh, it was AP23 and Mega B, right? And then Ultra B though, which is interesting, was the most favored by the bees. So if they're taking more of it back, maybe if it's a lower quality, uh, then bringing more of it into the hive results in gains. I don't know, but the studies did not play that out. And the way they did it was lab controls. You know, they offered all the different pollen subs and the bees went to each one under controlled environmental situations, right? And then they went to see how much brood was developed. And I don't know if they got into the longevity of bees that were developed off of the dry pollen substitutes that were offered, but brood was definitely increased with those top two. So do you need it? I think that's why when I see pollen, as soon as pollen is added to something, um, if you were going to put a patty on there to help your bees, uh, winter patties are, you know, those are carbohydrates. So I'm not personally interested in seeing additional protein added to those. Uh, a lot of good companies are making these proteins. And why are they? Because it's in demand by beekeepers. So I don't see that there will be a big difference either way. And I've had, uh, you know, entomologists give very good arguments on both sides of it. One being they needed the food, they needed the pollen, they needed the protein in an environment where the bees were being kept, where none was offered in the environment. Now here where I live, and also this person is in the state of Pennsylvania, my bees are finding pollen somewhere. And the next time we get a clear warm day, I'm going to collect the pollen off of some of those bees and I'm going to make sure that it's plant pollen. I'm going to put that under a microscope. It's going to be very obvious if somebody else in my area is feeding a dry pollen sub somewhere 
and uh, or if they're actually bringing in plant pollen. I'm not good at identifying specifically by pollen what the plant source is, but I will at least know that it's coming from a plant and not someone's open feeding pollen station. So that's it. I do think it's fine, you know, and I like the idea of warming the syrup, by the way, and putting that out there. And some people may be wondering, what's the point of warming syrup if they're going to drink it anyway? Well, I did the studies and all you have to do is go to my uh, YouTube channel and up in the little search space up there with a little magnifying glasses, uh, how cold can honeybees forage? And when you look at that, it's very telling that if your syrup is cold, 50 degrees or colder, which if it's out there all night, it would be. And uh, then if you keep another batch of syrup inside and then you put it out and it's in the 70s when the bees go to it, right? So the syrup is in the 70s, not necessarily the outside temperature, 10 to one. In other words, bees that consume syrup that's cold, you'll see them collected all around the feeder trying to recover. And by recover, I mean they have to warm it up. They have to get their thorax warmed up. Their muscles have to be warm enough for them to fly back to the hive. And if you're offering it warmed as described here, uh, or for in my case, just keeping it inside until it's warm, then taking it outside, commercial beekeepers can't do this because the quantities of syrup that they put out are enormous and you couldn't be shifting it in and out. This is one of the advantages of backyard beekeeping. If you want to get some syrup to those bees that are foraging out and as described here, give them something to do, something to bring back, because they're bringing back comparatively small quantities. And guess what? When they get into the hive with that, it gets consumed right away. It's passed around. So in other words, they're not storing diddly in the middle of winter. So that actually works in keeping it warmed 10 to 1, the number of trips they can make back and forth with that as compared to the cold or almost ambient temperature syrup that's out there. So my personal opinion is that the dry pollen subs, the pollen patties and things like that in fall or midwinter as something for them to do is not going to show a significant benefit. So if it's just to occupy them, maybe it feels good for you to see it. Okay, but also it can cause dysentery if they consume a bunch of solids, they get back into the hive and then they can't do anything with it really. And also they can't do cleansing flights to empty their gut that's where you end up with a lot of bee excrement on the front of your hive and maybe even the beekeeper on some super warm day when you go out to look at them. Question number three comes from Brian. It says, can you give your opinion on rotating brood boxes in the spring to help discouraging early swarming? This is another divider and you're going to find out again when beekeepers all, you know, you're going to get very strong opinions about rotating brood and what does it even mean? Okay, so if you've got two or more boxes on your beehive going into winter, and this only matters for your vertically stacked hives. So for the Lands hives, for the Long Langstroth hive, this does not matter. Okay, so for the vertical hives, um, spring is a big time of swarming. Okay, so the thing is, by the time winter has passed, they've moved up into that top box. If you've got multiple boxes and that's right underneath your inner cover, and that's hopefully where you've got some winter emergency resources for your bees in the form of sugar or fondant or something else that will give them the carbohydrates that they need just to barely subsist and not be dead in spring. 
Now, when they do that, spring comes. And then when spring comes, they start backfilling all the frames. And of course, they start their brood up high in the hive. And that's because it's warmest up there. It's where they happen to be. It's also where some of the winter brood has been. So they're trying to stay warm and they're clustered up there and they like to get up against a surface, right? So then while they're up there, now that it gets warm and spring comes along, they'll start slowly moving down. But a lot of beekeepers who have multiple boxes, usually double deeps, will take the bottom box, which is now empty, right? So they'll take the top box and they'll pull it and they'll put it on the bottom board and they'll take what was the empty bottom box and they'll put that on top and that is reversing your boxes. The thinking is, well, now they're down below and now they've got lots of room to expand directly above them and they won't swarm. Okay, and that can work. I personally don't alter the arrangement of my boxes. And if you've looked at the videos of my bee yard, uh, almost all, I have a couple of double deeps, okay? But almost all of the others are a single deep with a medium on top. Some people use all medium boxes because they're easier to lift. And I'm gonna caution those people because when you go to pull that top box, because remember, we're hitting springtime, you're trying to stop swarming or, or cut back on swarming. When you go to move that, you almost, nine times out of 10, you tear your brood in half. Because those medium boxes, the brood is usually the lower third of it, carries over into the lower box, so they're kind of already on their way down. So pulling them apart, and now what did you do? You put what was a connected piece of brood underneath, you just made that the top of the frames when you put that box up there. Now we have a big gap for your bees to warm and maintain and protect brood and care for them. So that's also why I'm personally not a fan of rotating your boxes in spring. So the second part of that is congestion does trigger swarming. So we want to bring them down. And this is where I've experimented and just continue to play with entrances, entrance sizes. Because I found that as things warm up, where do your bees want the brood to be? Near the entrance, because it's ventilated. So if you've got a huge wide open landing board entrance because you've got these beautiful warm days and you want all of your bees to come and go unimpeded, you know, across the full width of your landing board, you also have a lot of ventilation going on through there, which means now they can spread their brood almost anywhere they want in there, okay? where I found out if I keep my entrance consistent and I keep the location of the entrance consistent, the bees will naturally start to migrate down as things warm up and they'll backfill with honey as they come down and then they will begin to fill out again these bottom frames, okay? And uh, you do run the risk of swarming. And so what happens then is there are things you can do to relieve congestion. One of the reasons that they came out with these uh, slatted racks in the first place, uh, there's your bottom board, then there's a two inch spacer, which has the slatted rack in it. That creates uh, decongestion. Okay, so that creates additional space for your bees to occupy. So it makes them feel less cramped, right? Because that cramping, that congestion, the population, the reduction of the queen's pheromone, the running up against a you know a honey cap inside the hive, those things combined with a lot of nutrition coming through the entrance of your hive can trigger swarming. Why? Because that's what bees do. Their entire purpose is to reproduce. And reproduction on the colony level is a swarm. And you're going to hear that all 
the time. So we're fighting bee biology, but by providing these resources, we can manipulate them to use the space that they have, hopefully before they decide to swarm. Now, rather than rotating the boxes, I would like you to take a minute to look into the Demaray method. Now, here's the thing. It's a complicated system, but I did an interview that I really wish, if you haven't seen it already, you would watch and listen to this interview. It's called The Keeper's Hive. The reason I think this is a great idea is because rather than rotating boxes, it teaches you how to manipulate your frames and move them up and down and create some separation within your hive that decongests the brood area, but it does not slow production. And because it's a full-size brood box with a nuke on top of that off to one side, it becomes a means of shifting your frames around, keeping your population growing, and giving your bees the sense that they have room to expand and therefore reduces one of their triggers for swarming. Now, the other part of that is uh, you can easily inspect the bottom box without removing the top box, and you can find queen cells, for example. So if there's brood then uh, and they're developing queen cells, you can start to remove those and prevent them again from swarming. So please listen to that or watch that interview and consider other methods instead of rotating your boxes top to bottom. So that's it for number three. Moving on to number four. This comes from Michael in Brisbane, Australia. It says, I'm trying your configuration for nukes with two different modified honey supers. I cut down the ideal depth. One full depth with four Ross round frames. Question number one, how often do you inspect nukes? Okay, so when it comes to my nucleus hives, 90% of what I do is looking at the entrance and what's going on. The other part of that is I like to pull the cover just to see if they're filling those top frames because during a nectar flow, progress can happen really fast. So I try to get a look at the top. I look at the landing boards and entrances almost daily, unless it's pouring rain or something like that. So, and we're talking about in springtime. So then when the top comes along, maybe every couple of weeks, and then I keep notes about what's going on. And I look for examples of heavy bearding outside the hives. So when the hives have a lot of beer, a lot of bearding. So when they have a lot of bees collecting on the front, hanging underneath, if you've got hive visors and things like that, they could be collecting underneath the high visor. And that's when you know that there's a lot of honey, a lot of nectar uh, being brought into the hive and they're displacing bees. So that's rapid growth. I don't pull them apart during those periods. But then when they are all inside, I try to go in. So I want to hit on the time of inspection because I think it's important for some new beekeepers. Uh, the prime time to look in the hive just to see and get the best look at the frames would be about two o'clock in the afternoon on a nice sunny warm day. And the reason for that is the bees that are foraging are out and the bees that would have been bearding on the front and everything else would likewise be hopefully out of the way. And I can look to see what their progress is and how much storage they have because here's what they do and you need to be prepared for this in spring. They take up twice the real estate inside the hive when they're spreading around new nectar. And then as they dry that and condense it down, it occupies half the space that it once did. So you need 10 frames of nectar that's in progress. You know, it's being dried down 
and they keep passing that around and shifting it cell to cell and then they'll condense that down that would occupy then five completed capped frames of honey so that's what i kind of want to see and what i want to know is going on and you'll know when they're getting close because as the honey ripens as it hydrates down uh, the scent of the honey becomes stronger and stronger and that's when if you're coming from downwind of your apiary you will smell heavy honey in the air and that's when they're really getting it done and then I pick up on my supering. In other words, before they fill out all those frames, I need to super that because I want to offset their propensity then to swarm because they have a full colony of bees and resources, right? So question number two, if there's no more room for laying, which frames do you move? So when there's no more room for laying, uh, what I like to do is the number one frame and the number 10 frame, or if we're in a nuke, we're talking number one and number five. So the frames that are there, I would pull the frames that are full of capped brood, for example. You can pull them up into the second box and then you can push the others together underneath because now we still have a continuous brood area. I don't like to split up broods. Sometimes you'll hear people say, checkerboard the brood and you know, pull your brood frames apart and put empty frames right between them and they will be forced to draw out the comb and finish them off. I like to keep production high, so I like to keep the brood frames together. If another hive needs frames of brood, then you would be pulling them off. But in this case, your goal is to finish out Ross rounds. So, and by the way, for those that don't understand what we're talking about, the Ross rounds are comb honey and they came out after World War II. So what they are is uh, they're designed to go in their own box. In fact, there isn't one for a nucleus hive. But last year I played around with them. I learned a lesson about putting Ross round frames right next to standard frames. That's a no-go. Don't do it. In this case, we're going to put four Ross round frames. And I want to draw your attention to a company that took the Ross round frames, the standard ones, and they put clips on the ends of them so that you can have two rows of Ross round frames. And then they fill the space of a single deep Langstroth standard frame. And that's what I used last year. It worked good. I learned a lot because if you don't put those up against other Ross round by Cirocell, they're the ones that made the clips. If you don't put them right next together as they're designed to do, you end up with a bunch of feral comb on the outboard ends. So if you can put those all together in the middle and keep them centered over, so you have a center warm productive column going through your nucleus hives, that should be the top box and they will fill those out. And we don't want to be pulling out a bunch of brood because you want that to be a strong colony. In fact, I would almost for the sake of developing comb honey, I would almost go four boxes. Now I realize that's 20 deep frames if we put it all together. But this central, this narrow column that's tall, if you can strap it down, if you can stabilize it and make that a good one, I think for this coming year, this coming spring, that that would be a great way to produce comb honey. And uh, because Cirocell made those clips and now it fits the standard box, you don't have to do any cutting down or modifying your boxes. You can use the standard deep nuke. And for you, um, maybe you have access to Cirocell gear because they're out of New Zealand, I believe. And they're harder, it's harder to get their stuff here. I think uh, for those who are listening, if you want to go look it up, go to the Blythewood Bee Company. B-L-Y-T-H-E-W-O-O-D 
B Company, and he carries a lot of Cirrusel equipment. So you would be looking for the Cirrusel Deep Frame Ross Rounds. And I will also put a link uh, down in the video description here, although I understand that some people can't see the video description when you're watching this on television or if you're using a tablet or something else, when you're not a member of YouTube and you don't have your own YouTube channel, it's not accessible somehow, which I found weird. But uh, so you might have to go to my YouTube channel and go to that search panel again and just type in Ross Rounds and you'll see that we did tests on both. So Ross Rounds gone wrong. That's one where if you match them up with the standard frames, which you should not do. And then, of course, Ross Rounds beginning to end. So in one video, I show you how to put the cassettes together, how to put the foundation in it, what, how to select a hive to put them on. And then they did great things. So you can get uh, comb honey and it's fantastic. So then another part of these questions were, uh, well, what do you do with the frames uh, removed from the nukes? Do you freeze frames before comb cutting? So if it's a Ross round, they're already cut. We just, we're trimming the edges and they, they come in cassettes. If you're using shallow supers, shallow frames, then you have to cut your own. But uh, what I do is I cut them first. I process them and then they're going to be in their cassettes, whatever those are. Some people like wooden boxes for them. Some people get the Ross round cassettes. If you're doing Ross rounds, it's already, the ring is there and you're just putting a clear cover over it. And sometimes there's a white cover and another clear, you can find it all. So if you just Google Ross rounds, you'll find the components that you need. Uh, I wait until they're all in the cassettes and uh, then I just put those in big freezer bags and stick them right in the freezer and I leave them there for 48 hours. And a lot of people are, well, what's the purpose of that? If by some long shot, there are, you know, if there are wax moth larvae eggs or something like that, that made it into the comb, uh, that you would want to stop that right there. You don't want that to grow. I've never had it happen, but uh, I just go through that cycle and freeze it. Now here's the other thing. Since we're talking about freezing and once they're in their cassettes and they're finished and ready to go, here's what I recommend. Uh, that you leave them in their cassettes, that you band them, mark them, identify the weight and things like that, because that's in the state of Pennsylvania, what you're required to do. What is it and how much does the material weigh? So usually they're about eight ounces or nine ounces or something like that. Um, leave them in the freezer. So just leave them in there because here's what can't happen while it's in the freezer. It will not crystallize in the cells. So your honey will not set. Depending on the time of year that you did this. If you did it in spring, not that much of a problem. Clover honey and stuff like that does not crystallize very fast. But if you did this in fall, and you've got asters and goldenrod and stuff like that as your source for nectar and honey, then you might have a case where it crystallizes in the cells. So by leaving it in the freezer, you arrest that activity. It won't crystallize. And then when you have somebody that if you're going to market or you're going to sell your comb honey or something, then you thaw it out 24 hours in advance and you take it out and it's fresh and good to go. So those are my recommendations on that. And what else? Yep, that's it. Question number five. This comes from McCorn, M-C-O-R-N-E-8134. That's the YouTube channel. In practicing with the queen introduction and queen isolation cages. This is coming up every single week, but guess what? This is a good question to ask. It looks like the bottom of the cage has a very small gap. And so for those of you who are going to be in the dark about this, let's get them out. 
It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the queen introduction or the queen isolation cage because the potential issue exists for both. If you're putting a frame in here, what is being talked about is, here's the empty cage. This is for a single deep frame. If I take, and for visualization, I'm using a deep frame of better cone. When you put that in here, one of the concerns in the question is, because I read it in advance, I did my homework, says it looks like you would smash the bees on top of the frame. That's true. Look how close it is. See that? But I personally wouldn't smash them because I like bees. So what I do is when I'm putting the cover on and bees are on the top of the frame, I slide the cover along and I push the bees off. No smash bees. That's number one. That problem's out of the way. And I did that when I was demonstrating, I believe, the BVAC. The everything BVAC. We used a queen introduction cage and uh, we demonstrated also queen isolation cages. So the queen's in here and now here's what we're talking about. This space right down here. And I don't know if it shows, but uh, it is pretty tight through there. But there is enough room for them to move under the frame. But let's say, let's say we want to fail safe and we want to make sure that the bees can get around. Because the thing that's true is if you had this frame centered in your cage, see there's a little play there. If it's dead center, then there is not room for your bees to go around this end or this end of the frame. However, if you push it to one end, then you do have, of course, it's something you have to think about, but if you push it to one end, they can then go around that end, but not this end if we push it over here, okay? So the next thing I'm going to say, because we want to avoid any problems with it, I hadn't thought about it, actually, though. That's why I'm so happy about this question, because we're talking about drone control. So if we're talking about the green drone frames, guess what they're made out of? It's a one-piece plastic frame. So your bees, uh, I'm going to recommend that if you have those green drone cones, why not? I'm going to get it. This is what that looks like. So this thing is one piece of plastic. I'm going to recommend that if you're using it inside your queen isolation cage, which also will hold the drones in there. If the queen can't get out, drones can't get out. So the cage is all the same. I'm going to recommend that you drill a half inch diameter hole or a 5 8 inch diameter hole dead center just under this bar and one in each corner. And when they draw out the beeswax on this, that will guarantee that they can still pass through and the queen can lay up both sides. Now, another option, of course, is that you wait until this frame is completely laid up and then you're not putting the queen in there at all. You're just taking a frame of capped drones and you're putting them inside that isolation cage. But uh, I think you're going to want to have the queen in there and let her lay it up first. And then uh, we want her to have access to both sides. So this is kind of important. So having those holes, the other thing is if it's just queen introduction, then that's another case where better comb could work. Uh, and that's because it's just like regular beeswax and they can create pass-throughs or you can make it for them or a regular wax foundation. And better comb, of course, comes, that's a medium, comes deep or medium and the bees can chew right through it. So 
that is important. We want to make sure that you observe the queen being able to show up on both sides and you don't have to sit and watch her do the whole thing. After about a week, you should be seeing eggs on both sides of the frame. So I think that's a very good question and to make sure that we understand that whatever kind of frame we're putting in those cages, whether it's a queen introduction cage or a queen isolation cage, uh, then we know that the queen can get to both sides. So evaluate your frames, think about holes and making points of uh, travel between both sides. So I think that's really interesting. Uh, the bottom, I believe though, is enough space, but it is tight. So why make it tough on her? If they don't like the holes, they'll just fill them with comb and that's what that will be. So guess what? That was the last of my um, questions for today. And uh, so I have uh, the fluff section. What you saw in the cover section today was me holding the stethoscope. Flashback to EMT days, right? So when you have a stethoscope, if you wanna find out what your bees are doing, in other words, is this colony alive? When you go outside, you can use a stethoscope and put it on your hive at a lot of different locations, front, back, high, low. This will help you because these don't cost that much. These will help you locate your cluster inside the hive in the wintertime. Why the heck is that important? Well, one peace of mind, for those of you who just have to know, are my bees alive? You can hear them humming in there. You don't have to knock on the hive, so don't bother doing that. Because some people like to thump their hive and they hear a little going on in there. Don't annoy your bees. Just put it up there and listen and hear what's going on. And then you'll know wherever the sound is loudest that is where your cluster is located and then you can gauge how much space there is above them and make an assumption that there is a lot of honey above them. If there weren't a lot of honey above them, they would have moved up and covered the space and then they'd be starving up against the underside of your inner cover. So a stethoscope is inexpensive. You can use it on your hives. If your hive is insulated, these are the problems. I was out shooting thermals this week. And uh, when you're doing that, the Apame hives, I noticed that I could see a real heat signature through the handles because the sidewalls are thin and uninsulated there. They were really glowing. So you go out on kind of the coldest day if you have an infrared scope, if you have a FLIR system. And I'm currently using the FLIR. I still have the C2, which is discontinued, but it's still working. So that's a standalone FLIR camera. It's about this big. I use the other one that now connects to your smartphone, plugs in, the app detects it, it comes up. The good news about that is, and, and uh, you can see some of those sequences. The good news about that is um, you can record it with your phone, video, and you can also take still photos. So if you're gathering information about where your cluster is and you're creating some kind of database, uh, it's really good for that. So the cheap route, FLIR is the most expensive route, but the FLIR is instant. You can scan with your FLIR, you know, 20 hives and see where every single cluster is located. So they're very cool. Or you can get out there and just look like a nerd and listen to your hives. So that's pretty cool. Uh, watch your food levels. I'm going to say it again. Make sure you have emergency feed on those inner covers. Make sure your hive tops, if nothing else, at least insulate your hive top. And uh, check box alignment. The wind and the weather and the shifting and blowing can make your boxes a little bit askew. So if you can take your time to go out there and look and see if the boxes are slightly shifting off, 
you can't really pull them back into position. I have on a nice warm day put bar clamps on and then crank the bar clamp and very slowly pull them into alignment. Uh, but at this point of winter, so we're already in January, instead I wrap it with landscape cloth. It's this green felt stuff. And that's just to make sure that it hasn't created an air gap that now water goes through and wind goes through. So that's what I do. So it's something to keep an eye on the alignment of your boxes. When the ground is, you know, we've had wet weather and freezing weather and everything else. So we have frost heave coming up eventually. So you want to make sure that your hides are strapped down good just in case they start to tip as the ground shifts and stuff, depending on what the composition is. These are all things to keep uh, track of. Clear your entrances and things like that. And uh, what else? That's all I can think of. So a lot of you might be wondering, um, how am I doing this? Because this is a Q&A and this is Friday. And maybe if you're at the North American Honey Bee Expo, uh, yes, I'm there too. So if you're at the North American Honey Bee Expo, track me down and say hello. And if you have any questions about today's Q&A, I'm right there. Come up, bring me a cup of coffee or something, and, and we'll talk about uh, what we talked about here. And maybe the guys from the Keeper's Hive are there, or something cool is going on in the vendor area that I need to see. I want to know. So it's only Friday. We still have all day Saturday. So stop by, say hi, let me know what's going on out there and uh, we'll get some good video that we can share with all the viewers and listeners next Friday. So thanks for being here. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Thanks for watching. <music>